You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This is being recorded on the 12th of May for the listening week that begins the 13th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey, opening with an opinion piece from the Washington Post, written by Patricia Spencer Favreau, posted on May 9th. My mother's passport might be empty, but her journeys are remarkable. says Patricia Spencer Favreau is an executive vice president for the Church Pension Group. She lives in Massachusetts. I called my mom from Milan last month to brief her on my busy days ahead. I was seeing the sights in Italy and Copenhagen while visiting my son, who is studying overseas. She responded, as she almost always does, saying, Whoa, you Favreaux's are always on the move. She's proud of and exhausted by the life I live. In her mind, I am constantly on the move, and she is not. But I have a different perspective on what it means to be well-traveled. At 56, I have been around the United States and many points abroad. I've, ce- pardon me, I've celebrated Easter in Santorini, Greece, Christmas in Vatican City, New Year's in Paris, spring break in Mexico, and a birthday in Puglia, Italy. I have been to the opera in Berlin and safaried in Kenya. My mom, by age 56, had flown only a handful of times and had never left the country. She has lived here her entire life in the D.C. area, navigating its culture, values, politics, and roads, traveling different, difficult journeys to get important work done. Doris Jean Kamek was born in D.C. on February 27, 1940. As a young girl, she traveled by trolley from her black neighborhood in Northeast through all-white neighborhoods in Northwest to attend church with her family. Looking out the window at how differently white people lived, and listening to how disrespectfully white people spoke to her mother, my mom learned that she was black, and that being black was something she enjoyed in her bones, something white people seemed not to understand or appreciate. In 1954, she traveled by bus with eight other black girls who walked a gauntlet of angry and hostile white parents and students to integrate Anacostia High School. For days, my grandfather skipped work and stood outside the school to make sure nothing happened to his daughter. He didn't see it when a white boy slapped her face so hard that it left a mark, but he made sure the entire black community in D.C. knew about it. My mom had extra protection until she graduated in 1957. After high school, my mom journeyed up the ladder of government service, starting out in the cafeteria of the transportation department, and eventually retiring with senior executive status. 
During her career, she broke one barrier after another, often finding herself the only and the first black woman in rooms filled with white men. Her time at Anacostia High School had taught her to hold her head high as she entered any room. My mom started graduate school when I was in middle school, studying evenings and weekends in secret. My brother and I learned she was pursuing a master's in public administration at American University when she invited us to attend her graduation. Watching her walk across the big stage at Constitution Hall, I wondered how she'd done it, and everything else, without missing a beat at home. The miracle of it redefined, blew wide open, what was possible for me. My mom, I've come to realize, has spent her entire life on the move. She marched to the big avenues in our nation's capital for equal rights, crisscrossed the D.C. area campaigning for her favorite Democrats, and joined a class action suit against the federal government that challenged its discriminatory practices. She voted and drove older black citizens to the polls so their voices could be heard, too. At 83, my mom is an engaged, influential community activist who on any given day will take a phone call from a member of Congress and make a house call to a neighbor in need. Talking to my mom last month, I realized that she sees a traveler in me but doesn't recognize the traveler in herself. She doesn't count the barriers she crossed, the miles she drove, the glass ceilings she shattered, and the bridges she built as journeys, but they most definitely are. My mom has traveled through thick walls of racism, violence, gender discrimination, and class bias to find herself and her family well, diverse, happy, and thriving. Her physical passport might be empty, but her personal passport is abundantly full. So, I called my mom when I returned from my trip. I asked her what she'd been up to over the past week. As expected, her answers included trips around the Beltway to take care of things and people in need. My mom is remarkably consistent at 83. I listened and laughed with her. Then, before she got a chance to say it to me, I said to her, Whoa, Mom, you're always on the move. Next article comes from the Denver Post. It was published May the 2nd. Written by Tiny Ricciardi. Colorado nonprofit will launch free outdoor skills school for people of color this summer. Nonprofit Black Packers landed a $241,000 grant, $241,000 grant to host five and two-day workshops in the YMCA Camp Shady Brook. Black Packers a Colorado nonprofit focused on diversity and equity in outdoor recreation, is launching a new wilderness training program this summer with help from a hefty grant. The Black Packers Outdoor Skills School, or BOSS, will provide wilderness first response and wilderness first aid training to people of color and individuals from other groups traditionally underrepresented in the outdoors, 
free of charge. The idea for an outdoors skills school came from Black Packers founder and executive director Patricia Cameron's own experience learning outdoor safety and emergency preparedness. Cameron, who previously worked as an EMT for more than a decade, has spent years investing in her outdoor education, becoming a certified interpretive guide, a leave-no-trace master educator, a wilderness first responder and instructor, a heart-saver CPR instructor, and a graduate of the National Outdoor Leadership School. Next month, she will finish her wilderness EMT training so Black Packers can be a provider of wilderness medicine education. However, she knows the time and money it takes to invest in those certifications can be prohibitive—pardon me, prohibitive—pardon me again—can be prohibitive to a lot of people. In February, the organization landed the two hundred and forty-one thousand dollar grant from the Colorado Health Foundation to help lower the barriers to entry for folks looking to learn those skills. I'm trying to provide those skills to people to empower people, she said. But also, these are entry-level outdoor skills, and Colorado has a huge outdoor economy. And so, if I can give people leave no trace, if I can give people wilderness first response, they're going to have a better chance of breaking into the industry. In July, the organization will host, pardon me, will host multiple five-day wilderness first response workshops and two-day wilderness first aid workshops at YMCA Camp Shady Brook in Deckers, Colorado, where trainees will stay overnight. Cameron expects the two-day trainings to continue on weekends through the end of the year. The grant money will help pay for the experts who will provide training and to provide free lodging and food for all attendees. This year is something of a pilot program, said Cameron, and BOSS will return in 2024. The workshops are open to adults as well as high school-age kids across the country, and they are, of course, free to attend. Those who are interested can email admin at coblackpackers.com all one word coblackpackers.com for administration about how to register BOSS is just one of the many programs Black Packers offer throughout the year additionally the organization coordinates camping, backpacking and hiking excursions swimming lessons and skiing and snowboarding trips Black Packers also provides all the necessary gear for every adventure it plans. And for more information in general, visit blackpackers.org. Next one comes from the New York Times, also posted May 2nd, written by Kayla Stewart, where the milkshakes are served with the celebration of black culture. At Harlem Shake, which continues to expand... The fun retro vibes connect to a deeper diner history. On a corner in central Harlem, just blocks from the Apollo Theater and Marcus Garvey Park, stands Harlem Shake, a diner designed to look, to look, pardon me, as though it's been there for decades. The walls are covered with Jet magazine covers and photographs, some signed, 
of black American musicians and celebrities, Regina Hall, Diddy, Maya Angelou, Questlove. Its retro dinner-style menus and swivel bar stools evoke nostalgia for an era of charm and upheaval in American culture. Rashida Purdy, a neighborhood resident of 14 years, finds comfort in how distinctly Harlem the restaurant is. The interior of it, the aesthetic of it, the music, you can hear it before you even arrive, she said. That's the Harlem I know and fell in love with years ago. Harlem Shake reaches a milestone this month. The black and woman-owned restaurant is celebrating its 10th anniversary. Having served the black and Latino communities in the neighborhood with updated takes on burgers, fries, and milkshakes. A second location opened in Park Slope, Brooklyn, in 2021, serving guava frosés and chicken strips dressed in spankin' hot sauce. And a third Harlem Shake is set to open in Long Island City this summer. Sharing food is almost like a love language, said Dardra Quaxum an interior designer and a Harlem native who opened the restaurant with Jelena Pasek. Feeding someone is no small gesture, and I love the fact that we're doing this in our community. Harlem has a rich diner history that belongs to black Americans. Former neighborhood mainstays from the 1960s, like Louise's Family Restaurant and M&G Diner, were recognized for their soul food, Pan Pan, which stood at the corner of 135th Street and Lenox Avenue, was a beloved black-owned restaurant that served locals for 30 years until it was destroyed in a fire in 2004. It was immortalized in the Alicia Keys video for the song, You Don't Know My Name. Miss Coxum regularly visited Pan Pan with her grandmother, who lived in Harlem's Riverton community. She went before and after school, describing it as a safe haven in her neighborhood. Oh, pardon me, that's a safe haven in her childhood. A feeling she wanted to recreate with Harlem Shake. After leaving New York for college, she returned to the neighborhood and channeled those memories, using them as inspiration for the restaurant's design. I always wanted to be back here in Harlem, she said. Before the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, lunch counters and diners were racially segregated and were often the site of racial tension and violence against black Americans, particularly in the South. The retro counter stools at Harlem Shake look like those lunch counters where black American activists started the sit-in movement in Greensboro, North Carolina, to protest racial segregation and injustice. Those protests spread, reaching across the South, including Mississippi, where Miss Coxum's grandmother hails from. She came to New York because she didn't really have many options or freedom in Mississippi, said Miss Coxum. And I'm not, pardon me, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It could be Coxum. Her name is spelled C-O-A-X-U-M. Going on with her quote, Harlem was a place of activism and of organized protests. Anything that we could contribute to help keep black history alive is important. Miss Pasek and Miss Coxum are an unlikely pair. Miss Pasek is from 
pardon me, Croatia, and moved to New York in 2000. She ran a coffee shop and a restaurant in Washington Heights. After a divorce, she wanted a job that would allow her more time with her children. When she met Miss Coxum, they bonded over their love of Harlem. Their efforts to serve and uplift the neighborhood go beyond the food and the space itself. Miss Pasek estimates that of the 35 people who work at the Harlem location, nearly 80% are from a local zip code. The owners regularly partner with local organizations and schools and host an annual Miss or Mr. Harlem Shake competition. Open to trans and cisgender contestants, the winner is given $750 to donate to a Harlem nonprofit of choice. The 10th anniversary celebration will be a neighborhood event, too, with performances from local jazz bands, including the Marching Cobras. I'm so proud to have a place where everybody, people of all genders, races, and orientations, can come together and eat, rest, remove any worries, and just enjoy themselves, said Miss Pasek. Citing a perfectionist mindset and the pressures of running a minority and woman-led business, Miss Coxum and her desire, pardon me, said her desire to get everything right can sometimes feel debilitating, but the restaurant's 10-year journey has taught her an important lesson. If you make a mistake, you fix it as you go, she says. With a business like this, you have no choice but to just start and keep going. Harlem Shake, if you're in the neighborhood, is located at 100 West 124th Street, Manhattan. Their number, 212-222-8300. And at 119 Fifth Avenue, Brooklyn. Still reading from the New York Times. This one was posted May 3rd, written by Vimal Patel. Howard University selects a new president and a historian. Ben Vinson III, the provost of Case Western Reserve, will lead an institution that has surged with record research grants and high-profile academic hires. Howard University, the renowned, historically black institution that was founded to educate freed slaves, has selected an historian of Latin America as its next president. As the university's leaders hope to continue its trajectory of surging enrollment and research growth. Ben Vinson III, who has served as provost of Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland since 2018, was chosen to be the 18th president of Howard, a 156-year-old university in Washington, D.C., that counts Vice President Kamala Harris, the former Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, and the author Toni Morrison among its alumni. He will assume his post on September 1st. The move announced by the university on Tuesday comes at an energized time for Howard, which has scored a series of wins in recent years, including record research expenditures and high-profile academic hires. Dr. Vinson will need to cut, pardon me, will need to keep up the momentum as well as deal with students who have staged sit-ins and protested conditions at the university. 
Dr. Vinson is the right leader to usher Howard into its next era. Leslie Hale, vice chair of the university's board of trustees, said in a statement, As an historian, he reveres the Howard legacy and brings a bold perspective of where Howard University should sit within the upper echelon of academic institutions. Some faculty members said his selection was a surprise, objecting to the search process. Dr. Marcus Alfred, an associate professor of physics and astronomy and chair of the faculty senate, said the university limited the faculty senate's participation, and he said that in a break from the past, the university community was not given the opportunity to meet with the finalists. In the last few years, Howard University has appointed high-profile figures like Stacey Abrams, the politician and voting rights activist, and the journalists Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ta-Nehisi Coates to its faculty. University leaders have said they hope the institution can become the first historically black college to break into the select group of institutions with the highest research expenditures. In October, the university announced that it had raised $122 million in research grants and contracts, a record. Last year, the university announced that it would spend $785 million to build three new academic halls and renovate other buildings, a move that officials at the time described as the product of, quote, unprecedented financial strength. Wayne A.I. Frederick who said last year that he would step down as president of the university, called the facilities investment a watershed moment. Officials described it at the time as a big, pardon me, as the biggest real estate investment in the university's history, driven partly by increased enrollment. They also credited increased public and philanthropic investment. In 2020, the university announced that it had received a $40 million gift from Mackenzie Scott, the former wife of Jeff Bezos, who founded Amazon. Even so, students have been impatient for change. In 2021, they held sit-ins and slept in tents to protest housing shortages and poor living conditions in the dorms, a concern common to many historically black universities with their aging buildings. After a standoff lasting more than a month, students reached an agreement with Howard and ended the protest. Dr. Vincent's academic field makes a sharp contrast with that of Dr. Frederick, the outgoing president, who is a Howard-trained surgeon. The University Search Committee and trustees turned next to an historian with his focus cast outside of the United States. Dr. Vinson is a scholar of the African diaspora with an eye especially on colonial Latin America. He is the author of several books, including Before Mestizaje, The Frontiers of Race and Caste in Colonial Mexico. Dr. Vinson, 52, spent his childhood on military bases in Italy, where his father was a master sergeant in the U.S. Air Force. He has previously served as the founding director of the Center for Africana Studies at John Hopkins University, where he also taught history, and as dean of George Washington University's Liberal Arts and Sciences College. Chairman of the Howard Board of Trustees Lawrence C. Morse said in a news release that Dr. Vinson has, quote, 
demonstrated his commitment to elevating the diversity of experiences of people of the African diaspora, a commitment that aligns well with Howard University's mission and vision. Mr. Morse did not respond to an interview request. In a statement, the president of Case Western Reserve, Eric W. Kaler, credited Dr. Vinson with leading development of that university's ambitious strategic plan and new general pardon me, new general education requirements and with increasing diversity in its faculty and graduate student recruitment. President Collar also said that Dr. Vinson was a strong supporter of the humanities at a time when some universities were cutting back on those. He is an exceptionally warm and empathetic person and will be a great leader for Howard, he said. Moving next to theroot.com for some more news. An update on the current strike. This one's by Jessica Washington. It was published on the 10th. Black WGA writers say they're not backing down anytime soon. Black writers on strike outside of HBO and Amazon's studios say they're in this for the long haul. It's week two of the Hollywood writers' strike, and it shows no signs of ending anytime soon. It could be months before we see a resolution after contract negotiations fell apart last week. On Wednesday, WGA members and their supporters picketed outside of HBO and Amazon Studios demanding a fair contract. It was a lively scene outside of the two major studio houses. The sound of trombones from a band cheering on the strikers echoed through the crowd as people grabbed bagels and picket signs. But despite the festive atmosphere, the black writers who spoke to the route were clear they were there for a fight. We're here to take a stand, said John Mahone, 36. The future of the profession is at stake. We're here to make sure that not only we can survive, but future generations of writers can survive. Mahone, who recently wrote on the HBO series Our Flag Means Death, says he doesn't see the strike ending anytime soon. We're in this for the long haul, he said. They don't seem close, so we're expecting this to last for months. I think it will end in July if we're lucky. Other black writers at the picket line shared similar sentiments. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. This is not for the faint of heart, says Erica Green Swafford, 50. She went on, power does not concede easily. And so it's going to take effort over and over and over again. Swafford, an award-winning writer who's worked on hit shows like How to Get Away with Murder, says she will keep striking to protect the rights of the writers coming after her. I'm out here because I was born black, and as a black person, that's the first union you sign up for, collective struggle, and I am now able to join a union because of my forefathers, she says. We're paying it forward. We're making sure that the people who come after us are able to make a living. Negotiations with the major networks don't appear to be improving. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers has drawn a line in the sand on a number of issues the WGA wants included in the new contract. However, the AMPTP says they're committed to reaching a compromise. The AMPTP member companies remain united in their desire to reach a deal that is mutually beneficial to writers 
and the health and longevity of the industry, and to avoid hardship to the thousands of employees who depend upon the industry for their livelihoods, said the AMPTP in a statement last week. Ashton Womack, 32, a writer for The Daily Show, says he's got money saved up for a rainy day, and he has no plans to back down now. I'm here for the long haul. I'm here for a fight, says Womack. Whatever they're dishing out, I'm dishing out. We're dishing out right back together. Next, also written by Jessica Washington, it was published on the 9th. Georgia DA Fannie Willis is closing in on Donald Trump. Eight of Donald Trump's former allies took deals in the Georgia election case that could take down the former president, according to court records. All eyes might be focused on Donald Trump's New York legal drama, but another black district attorney has the former president's number. Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis is leading an investigation into election interference in Georgia, and she appears to be closing in on him. Eight of Trump's allies accused of aiding him in trying to overturn the 2020 election have taken immunity deals, according to a court filing. And another likely subject of the investigation, GOP Georgia Chairman David Schaefer told D.A. Willis that Trump's attorneys directed his every action. The back-to-back news of Trump allies seemingly jumping ship doesn't bode well for his legal chances. It's worth backing up a bit to explain the mess Trump's facing in Georgia, since the alleged scheme involves quite a few layers. But one crucial part of the plan was to have false electors in Georgia pledge for Donald Trump, even though the state was won by President Joe Biden. The eight people who took immunity deals were among those false electors. The plan relied on finding enough of those electors in key swing states to vote against the election results and simultaneously have Vice President Mike Pence throw out the real electors' ballots. Pence obviously didn't follow through with that part of the plan, but that doesn't mean those involved are going to waltz into the sunset. Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis has indicated she is considering bringing the case against Trump and his alleged co-conspirators in a RICO case, R-I-C-O, typically used to prosecute organized criminal organizations. At least 20 people have been told that they are likely targets of this investigation, according to the New York Times, including Rudy Giuliani. We still have some time before we're likely to see an indictment. Willis indicated that the indictment won't come down until at least mid-July, but if the flipping we're watching play out in the news is any indication, Willis isn't playing around. Next article, still written by Angela Johnson. This one published on the 10th. Sunny Huston's new novel opens the door to a real black beach community. The Root spoke with The View co-host about her new beach read titled Summer on Sag Harbor. Fans of The View know Sunny Huston. Pardon me if I'm not pronouncing her name correctly. I don't watch The View. I don't watch any TV. Sorry. Okay, so fans of The View know Sunny Hostin as someone who can hold her own among the oft-opinionated panel 
in their daily discussions of the latest hot topics. But you may not know that the lawyer and television host is also a best-selling author who just released a steamy new beach read, Summer on Sag Harbor, is the latest novel from the three-time Emmy award-winning co-host and the second book in her Summer Beach Read trilogy. The Root caught up with Hostin to discuss her new book and how she's answered the call to make beach reads more inclusive. On writing the books she wants to read. Hostin, who released her memoir, I Am These Truths, a memoir of identity, justice, and living between worlds, in 2021, says she's been writing short stories since her children, now 17 and 20, were little. I didn't feel there was a lot of representation in children's books other than A Snowy Day, so I would make up stories and read them at night, she told The Root. And like the children's stories, Hostin said the idea for a beach read was born out of necessity. She says the pandemic and the senseless killings of unarmed black people, including George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, left her with a need to escape. But while looking for a book to get lost in, she was disappointed that none of the options centered around black characters. There was no beach reads with a picture of a black woman on the cover. You know that's always the tell, she said. After some research, Hostin discovered the lack of representation in the genre was real and decided to do something about it. I just thought about what Toni Morrison said. If there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it, she said. The result was Summer on the Bluffs. Her 2021 beach read set in Oak Bluffs, an historic black beach community on Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard, pardon me. I realized there was a gap in what I wanted to read, and it resonated, she said. And boy, did it ever. Summer on the Bluffs sold over 20,000 copies in the first week and catapulted to number 11 on the New York Times bestseller list. Now, just in time for summer, she's back with Summer on Sag Harbor, a story centered around Olivia Jones, a finance professional who feels something missing despite her success. After the loss and betrayal of her surrogate father, Olivia tries to sort through her feelings and sets out to solve the mystery behind the death of her biological father, a police officer unjustly killed when she was a little girl. But when she moves to a summer home in Sag Harbor, an historically black beach community on Long Island, New York, Olivia finds new perspective in new friendships and a sexy new neighbor. Honoring Historic Beach Communities Hostin says she's intentionally set her novels in real places with real significance to the black community, hoping to educate those who might not be aware of them. A lot of people don't know that blacks were not, or pardon me, a lot of people don't know that blacks were only allowed to buy beachfront property in three places in the U.S. Oak Bluffs on Martha's Vineyard, Sag Harbor, and Highland Beach in Maryland she said. I read about these beachfront communities and made, uh, pardon me, that's I read about these beachfront communities and made a conscious effort to become part of them. Austin said her series is a love letter to the beach communities she loves and is her way of letting others know that black people exist in those spaces. I wanted to have an elevated beach read, much in the way 
Ellen Hildebrand does with Nantucket. She's the queen of beech reeds, I thought. Maybe I can be the queen of black beech reeds, she laughs. I want people to know my happy place, and I hope people understand that there is this black excellence and this sense of community that was formed intentionally to be a safe space. As a chronic procrastinator who doesn't even want to look at a laptop, pardon me, at a laptop at the end of my workday, I had to ask Hostin how a mom slash lawyer slash television personality finds time to crank out best-selling novels during her busy days. I carve out my time at night. I write from about 11 p.m. during the week until about 1 a.m. I sometimes push it to 2 if I'm really feeling it, she said. I also block out time to write on the weekends after my kids' sports events. If she wasn't busy enough, Hostin's production company, Sunny Hostin Productions, is currently developing the novel series into a dramatic series in partnership with Octavia Spencer's Orit Entertainment. The host says she's already got her dream cast in mind. And Regé Jean Page and Godfather of Harlem's Ilfinish Hadera are among the stars on her wish list. I actually didn't dream this big. I thought I'd write this little book and people would be into it, but it's become a thing. Next, another conversation with authors. This written by Angela Johnson. It was updated, it says, on the 9th. These best friends are on a mission to redefine what it means to be a perfect mom. The Root spoke with the authors of a Good Mom's Guide to Making Bad Choices, about their hilariously raw new book. When asked to describe the perfect mother, you might conjure up an image of someone who bakes cookies from scratch, keeps a spotless home, and volunteers at every school fundraiser. But since 2018, self-described cannabis and sex-positive moms, Jamila Mapp and Erica Dickerson, have used their podcast, Good Mom's Bad Choices, to shred those outdated ideas in favor of something way more realistic and fun. And with thousands of loyal listeners and over 140,000 followers on Instagram, the pair has amassed a following that is eager to receive their message. Now, Map and Dickerson are out with a new book, A Good Mom's Guide to Making Bad Choices, that continues to flip the idea of what makes a good mom on its perfectly polished head, through candid, no-holds-barred conversations about their unique paths to motherhood, these ladies are giving women the freedom to be their fun and sexy selves while still being present for their children. The Root caught up with Dickerson and Mapp about their new book and the friendship they say has empowered them to keep it real. The best friends and co-hosts say they wanted their book to take an honest look at the challenges and transitions that come with motherhood in a way they hadn't seen done before. And they hoped that by sharing their stories, they would help other women who once felt ashamed feel seen. All of the books I'd read about motherhood were not written by women of color, and a lot of them didn't emphasize the ways you could care for yourself, said Mapp. We wanted to create a book that could speak honestly to women like us about the experience of motherhood. One of the things I've learned from our podcast 
is that so many women feel alone and ashamed in their choices, good or bad. We went so far with the stories because it allows women to feel safe and understood. Through their stories, Dickerson and Mapp affirm that being a mom doesn't mean you can't be yourself, even if that means smoking a little weed and having sex. Moms have sex. That's literally why we're moms, laughs Mapp. But this book is so much more than a permission slip to smoke a joint every now and then. Mapp and Dickerson use humor and honesty to help other women identify past traumas and move forward as their authentic selves, something they say will ultimately help them be better parents. We wanted other women to understand that there is freedom and peace in choosing yourself. Forget what other people say, because at the end of the day, your happiness and your peace is what's important, especially when you're a mother, says Mapp. From their birth plan to their relationships with their children's fathers, the single moms are honest with readers about how things in their real lives haven't always lined up with the stuff of their dreams, but they say they have found strength in their friendship and stress the importance of cultivating positive relationships with other moms you can count on. I don't think I would have experienced this amount of radical healing and radical honesty if I didn't have this friend who gave me the courage and confidence to do it, says Mapp. At the end of the day, the ladies hope their book helps shift the idea that women have to show up in the way our culture defines as perfect, and it's a message they hope their daughters will get from the book when they're old enough to read it. I hope that they see both of their mothers as human. I think a lot of times we paint mothers as these superhumans, and we are, but we have feelings and we make mistakes, says Dickerson. There's so much power in being authentic, and I hope that we are showing our daughters that that is the superpower of being a woman our softness, our ability to nurture, but also to be strong, solve problems, and power through. Every experience I've ever had has made me the woman I am today, and I'm not mad at it. I like who I am, and I think women need to hear that, adds Map. And if it takes for us to be super raw and vulnerable and say all the crazy taboo things, then F it, I'm here for it. Moving back to the New York Times, this is an opinion piece guest essay, and this I archived back in April. This was posted on April 18th, written by Chukumarije Okereke, who is the director of the Center for Climate Change and Development at Alex Ekweme Federal University in Nigeria. My continent is not your giant climate laboratory is the title. Several environmentalists last year presented Africa's leading climate negotiators with a bold idea. A technology called solar geoengineering could protect their countries from the worst effects of climate change, they said. While insisting they were impartial, representatives from the Carnegie Climate Governance Initiative said that these technologies, which claim to be able to re-engineer the climate itself, either by dimming the sun's rays or reflecting sunlight away from the earth, could quickly and cheaply turn the tide of dangerously rising temperatures, 
and that poor countries might have the most to gain. It wasn't the first time Westerners have tried to persuade Africans that solar engineering projects may be in our best interest. And it won't be the last. In May, another international nonprofit, the Climate Overshoot Commission, headquartered in Paris, is hosting an event in Nairobi to help drum up support for research on solar, geoengineering, and other related technologies it says could be helpful in reducing risks when the world exceeds its global warming targets. As a climate expert, I consider these environmental manipulation techniques extremely risky. And as an African climate expert, I strongly object to the idea that Africa should be turned into a testing ground for their use. Even if solo, pardon me, solar geoengineering can help deflect heat and improve weather conditions on the ground, a prospect that is unproven on any relevant scale, it's not a long-term solution to climate change. It sends a message to the world that we can carry on over-consuming and polluting because we will be able to engineer our way out of the problem. The solar engineering technology attracting the most attention would use balloons or aircraft to spray large quantities of aerosols, tiny particles of, for example, sulfur dioxide or engineered nanoparticles, into the stratosphere to dim the sunlight. It's called solar radiation management, and it's highly speculative. Without using the whole Earth as a laboratory, it's impossible to know whether it would dim anything, let alone how it would affect ecosystems, people, and the global climate. Other proposed techniques include covering deserts with plastic, genetically engineering plants to have brighter, more reflective leaves, creating or making clouds whiter, and deploying millions of mirrors in space. The point of all of them is to counter warming by reducing the amount of sunlight reaching the planet and reflecting it back to the stratosphere. Africa is already suffering the effects of climate change, such as drought, floods, and erratic weather. And while geoengineering advocates see these technologies as a solution to such problems, the technologies run the danger of upsetting local and regional weather patterns intensifying drought or flooding, for example, or disrupting monsoon cycles. And the long-term impact on regional climate and seasons is still largely unknown. Millions, perhaps billions, of people's livelihoods could be undermined. These technologies would also theoretically need to be deployed essentially forever to keep warming at bay. Stopping would unleash the suppressed warming of the carbon dioxide still accumulating in the atmosphere in a temperature spike known as termination shock. One study found that the temperature change after ending solar radiation management could be up to four times as large as what's being caused by climate change itself. The other risk is that geoengineering will divert attention and investments from building renewable energy and other climate solutions in Africa. The continent has received only 2% of global investments in renewable energy in the last two decades, and the lack of access to capital is perhaps the biggest obstacle for countries that would like to cut down on fossil fuels.
Funding does not seem to be a problem for geoengineering researchers, however, particularly those in the United States. The Harvard Solar Geoengineering Research Program has been expanding rapidly, supported by Bill Gates and philanthropists from Silicon Valley. While George Soros recently announced his intention to back solar geoengineering projects in the Arctic, the University of Chicago has also this month announced the creation of the Climate Systems Engineering Initiative to partner with national labs to explore these and other strategies. But should we even be studying geoengineering at all? More than 400 senior climate scientists and scholars from around the world have called for an international non-use agreement on solar geoengineering. Pardon me, geoengineering. If it goes before the United Nations, it could result in a ban on real-world research on this technology. Regardless, advocates have tried to entice African governments by offering to fund research projects. Claiming that more research will shed more light on the dangers and benefits of the technology, one such organization, the Degrees Initiative, says its mission is to put quote, developing countries at the center of the discussion around solar radiation management. But this just appears to be a way of trying to make Africa a test case for an unproven technology. Indeed. More studies into this hypothetical solution look like steps toward development and a slippery slope to eventual deployment. A striking example of rogue solar—pardon me—rogue solar geoengineering is the case of the American startup Make Sunsets, which recently launched balloons from Mexico to inject sulfur into the atmosphere, with the claim this would offset carbon emissions. Data on the balloon's final location, what happened with the released particles, and any impact on warming were never made public. The Mexican government was unaware of the exercise until after the fact, at which point officials swiftly announced a ban on solar geoengineering activities. The decision to test the technology without permission or notice was reckless, and the decision to do it in Latin America. Echoed some of the worst aspects of colonialism. African nations should strongly resist letting their territories be used for experimental exercises like this, and they must join efforts to strengthen the de facto moratorium under the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity on the development and deployment of these technologies. The technologies are potentially dangerous and a major distraction from the real change that we all know wealthier nations need to make if we have a hope of outrunning climate devastation. Next article comes from the Washington Post. It was published May twelfth, written by Ruth Marcus, an opinion piece. A pointed message from one judge to nine others about race and guns. In our judicial system, lower court judges take instruction from the Supreme Court, not the other way around. In the case of U.S. District Judge Reggie B. Walton, that's too bad. Walton, appointed to the local court in the District of Columbia by Ronald Reagan, and to the federal bench by George W. Bush, has a message for the justices that is appropriate, respectful, and devastating. Messages, actually, delivered in a speech Thursday about the importance of affirmative action, 
which the High Court, as Walton predicted, is about to dismantle, and about the scourge of gun violence, which, as Walton outlined, has been made all the more intractable by the Court's wrong-headed Second Amendment rulings. If only the judges had been present to hear it, if only they were open-minded enough to take it in. The Power of Walton's Speech, part of an annual lecture series in honor of the late just pardon me, the late Judge Thomas A. Flannery, derived from the personal nature of his appeal, as he told the audience of lawyers and judges gathered at the federal courthouse in Washington, Walton's is an American success story, far from inevitable, made possible by the existence of affirmative action. Growing up in western Pennsylvania, Walton, now 74, was a troublesome teenager arrested for delinquency three times, twice fairly, he confessed, while he was in high school, the son of a steel worker who worked two jobs as a janitor after the mills in town closed. Walton went to college at West Virginia State University, as he told it, for the primary purpose of playing football. Although he knew no black lawyers, the only one in the area practiced another town over, Walton became interested in law. I never saw anybody who looked like me who was using their intellectual capacity to make a living, he recalled. But he performed poorly on the LSAT, and that is where affirmative action came into play. In the form of a program by the Council on Legal Education Opportunity, held at Howard University Law School, in which law schools agreed to consider admitting those who participated and did well. When I think back on that experience, it was the opportunity afforded to me, an affirmative action program that gave me the opportunity I had, recalled Walton. And now that I see affirmative action coming under scrutiny, it concerns me. For good reason, the Supreme Court, by the end of its term, is likely to declare an end to affirmative action, overruling cases in which it has allowed colleges and universities to take diversity into account in assembling their student bodies. I fear that the Supreme Court, from the oral argument that I heard, may likely conclude that affirmative action is unconstitutional, said Walton. And as a result of that, if that occurs, the doors of opportunity for young black guys like me or young black women may not be available. He continued, When I hear criticism about affirmative action, I say to myself, Well, I was an affirmative action awardee. I'm not apologetic for that, and I'm not ashamed of that. Conservative judges, pardon me, that's conservative justices, ask yourselves, what if Walton hadn't been able to take advantage of that opportunity? He has spent a career in public service as a public defender, federal prosecutor, deputy drug czar, and highly regarded judge, now on senior status. Were efforts to assure him that chance really repugnant to the constitutional guarantee of equal protection of the laws, as conservatives claim, Walton's comments about gun violence were, if anything, even more impassioned and even more pointed in terms of the role of the court. For Walton, the specter of gun violence has personal resonance. His grandfather was shot and killed by a white man in Macon, Georgia, in 1927 when he failed to make way on the sidewalk. When, as a young assistant U.S. attorney, Walton drove his nice, pretty, brand-new black Corvette home to Pennsylvania to show it to his parents, 
He was stopped by a pair of state troopers who pointed their guns at his head and demanded, Whose car is this? And, How can you afford this car? Walton said, I've experienced personally what it is to have a gun pointed at your head, and it's not a pleasant occasion. As he explained, that risk has been inflamed by the court's recent action. In 2004, four years before the Supreme Court ruled that the Second Amendment pardon me, the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to have firearms for self-protection, Walton heard a case raising the issue and came to the opposite conclusion. But the law is what a majority declares it to be, and, as Walton noted, the Court's rulings on the Second Amendment will make it difficult, if not impossible, to defend measures to stem gun violence from keeping guns out of the hands of individuals subject to domestic violence restraining orders, to prohibiting those under 21 from purchasing handguns. Walton said, I think it's going to be hard to conclude that many of the limitations on the right to bear arms are constitutional. And is that going to make America safer? I predict not. As a judge, Walton vowed, I'll do the best I can to fulfill what the Supreme Court tells me to do even though I may find it detestable that I have to do what the court tells me to do. Detestable is a strong word indeed, but these are scary times, made scarier by a Supreme Court that ought to take heed when a judge such as Reggie B. Walton so powerfully dissents. That brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by the Joslyn Charitable Trust. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.